Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick, and after spending almost a full week in Las Vegas for the Merchant Rest Council's Conference 2022, I can say I survived. It was a great experience, and honestly, I've been attending this event since 2009. I missed a few between then and now, but have to say this was one of the best. And I know that so many of you guys have FOMO, which is fear of missing out for those of you that may not know that term. I apologize for that. I really tried hard to provide updates on my LinkedIn. I didn't update as much as I wanted to because there's a lot going on, but that's also what this episode of the podcast is about. I'm going to be providing a recap of my own experiences, as well as some of the session content that I thought was most relevant to this group. And some of the takeaways that I think will be of interest. So whether you were in Vegas last week and attended the conference or whether you had to miss it, I think that equally you'll find some decent information because obviously not everyone was able to go to every single session, myself very much included. I wasn't able to go to half as many educational sessions as I wanted to. And so I actually have my own FOMO for not being able to clone myself and be in great conversations with people or have meetings to learn about new technology and get to see educational sessions, especially because so many of my friends were on stage in those presentations. My voice is still recovering from talking in the desert for over a week. I talked a lot more than I usually do, which is saying something, but really tried to soak up as many in-person conversations as possible. And there may have been a little bit of extra fun had on Wednesday night at the Ethica slash MasterCard party at a nightclub that they rented out and they had private karaoke rooms and myself as well as some of my closest friends in the industry just sang our hearts out to a very interesting combination of songs from Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen to Hit Me One More Time by Britney Spears <laughs> all kinds of things in between that my voice was already shot by the time we went to karaoke, but man, it got 10 times worse. So I apologize for that. I'm a little extra raspy today, but I'm hoping in the next few days that will go away. Honestly, I think almost every MRC over the last several years, I come back with a hoarse voice. So my husband's very used to it. I do think there's something to be said about talking a lot in the desert, but that's like a whole other conversation. <laughs> So this was the first in-person frog conference I attended since starting this podcast. And I have to say, I was overwhelmed and humbled by the number of people that went out of their way to thank me for this podcast. If you were one of those people, I just really have to sincerely thank you. I don't always know what to do with so much attention and fanfare and compliments, but I really appreciated it. And it also reinvigorated me because... Quite honestly, for the last two years, almost two years, I've been just talking into a microphone and hitting submit in my 
home office and not totally knowing the impact. I mean, I can see the numbers in the dashboard of what we use for the podcast and see that they are growing tremendously. In fact, our download numbers grew by like 70% in the last two months, which is just insane. And thank you guys. But it's different to see the numbers and hear the impact. And I just so humbled and overwhelmed. So thanks. I The request for selfies and the two requests for an autograph, which I just deflected with something about, oh, so you can steal my identity and use my signature. I mean, that's not really true, but I just, it, it was weird and uncomfortable for me, but I was happy to take a few selfies. Uh, a lot of people would walk by and then turn around and say they recognize my voice. Clearly, I find that extra funny because today my voice is a little bit different. But I think that's a good thing as long as I'm not like Fred Drescher or something like that where it's extra unique. And then several people thanked me for helping them feel connected during this time. Whether it was COVID or not, I think there's always been a need for fraud fighters to feel connected with each other. And that's something that I have been working towards filling in several different ways. And this podcast and the upcoming F4, which is Fearless Female Fraud Fighter Virtual Retreat are two of those ways, but it just was really fulfilling and you know validating that I made a good decision to do this on my own because quite frankly, I when the decision was made to end the online broadcast, I really didn't think anyone would want to listen to just me on a podcast. So it was very validating and reaffirming that I made a good decision. There was also a person who I know you're listening to this and don't worry, I won't say your name or anything, but I really was taken aback, but also really just humbled by the fact that he got choked up when he told me the impact that this podcast has had on his career. He works for a new tech startup in the vendor space that's really quite impressive and we may be a sponsor down the road this year, but just he was new to the industry and before his interview he listened to several episodes of fraudology and said that it really made him kind of fall in love with the industry and understand the passion that a lot of us have and also helped him feel prepared for his interview so i really appreciated you sharing that impact there were a few other people that also took some time to really be personal about it but seeing you choked up got me choked up and it was just it was a special moment so thanks for that when things for sure i seriously think i have the best podcast audience ever i'm sure every podcast host thinks that but i don't know i'm pretty biased uh and last week just invigorated me to continue to improve the content on this platform so I have a long list of amazing people that I am hoping to interview in the near future and need to just carve out some time to get those on the books and just keep creating content for you and your teams to feel connected as well as just to think about things in a different way when it comes to online fraud, whether that's e-commerce, whether that's fintech, or if you're on the provider side and really curious what your users or prospects are are dealing with, I think those are all use cases that I heard this week that I was pleased to contribute to. Many people said that this was the best MRC event that they've attended in Las Vegas. I mean, of course, that's in part to seeing people in person after three years, really, because MRC 2020 was supposed to be the week that everything shut down. I think here in Seattle, we shut down a few days before the MRC was supposed to be held, but because the last one was in March of 2019, it, it had been three years. They did have a smaller event in August, but not as many people could come just due to the virus and, and other concerns. So 
this really felt like the most official kickoff and I didn't get to attend the last one in August. So to me, it was the first fraud conference of really the last three years. And there was something to be said about that. But also the session content was really relevant and informative. I think when I talked to the CEO of the MRC several weeks ago, she had said that her hope and their goal was to have 800 attendees total. When I talked to her the first day of the conference, she said that they had 1,301 or no, three, 1,303. I don't want to forget anyone. So those two are important. <laughs> but it was just great to walk around and see people just in deep conversation, whether it was about new technology or their current technology with their account reps whether it was merchants talking to merchants, which you know I'm such a big fan of. I got to introduce some of my favorite people in the world to each other and watch them become friends, which just lit my heart up in the cheesiest way possible. But also got to introduce merchants to each other, to their competitors, which is so valuable and interesting. I'm such a passionate people connector. It's one of my favorite things to do, and I love to see the results of it. So whether that's helping the right person get a new job or people meeting each other for new technology or just in general, just meeting each other to meet as a resource, to have as a resource year round, that's something that just really fulfills me. So I will keep doing that for forever or at least in, as long as I live. I do want to make a quick note before going into some of the session details and information. Definitely heard a lot of reports of vendor behavior. There were some good ones. There were some great ones that stood out and I was pleased and grateful that at least a couple of them are vendors that I've worked with and advised. So I was proud to see that my guidance and advice has been helpful to them. But also, there will always be some that just don't get it. And so actually, I was spending time with a merchant before the conference started. We actually went and saw Katy Perry in her residency in Las Vegas. A friend of mine who's not in fraud actually bought tickets and had to cancel her trip. So that was super fun. And just a side note that if you're a Katy Perry fan, that is an insane production. And I highly recommend checking it out the rest of the year. She's in Vegas, I think, once a weekend. But we were talking about just preparation and things like that and how she had over 150 emails in her MRC work folder in her Outlook email because she works for a large company and just a lot of invitations to connect. And I also heard from some solution providers that were frustrated or just kind of bummed out that they didn't get responses. But I think a lot of people don't realize that you're not the only one emailing them. But anyway, after hearing my friend to read some of the emails that she got this past week. I had this idea of having kind of a contest. If you've received cold emails from solution providers for the MRC, whether they're good or bad, right? If they're ones that like, wow, I actually wanted to respond to this or wow, you're really out of touch with this industry or I have no interest in talking to you, etc. I would love to have you send those. I'm planning on having a dedicated episode on this topic soon. I think there's just a lot to cover and share that I know will be valuable to both sides of the equation. And that's really my goal is just to provide value to everyone listening. And I think that by providing value to solution providers, we can hopefully change some behavior that I know is just really frustrating on the merchant side, because as I've mentioned this before, leaders on the merchant side or on the fintech side of fraud prevention. I mean, it's barely even in their job description to learn about new technology. And 
if it is, it's like two to 5% of their job. And so I think there's just this misconception that they're sitting at their laptop doing nothing and how dare they respond. So I plan on providing advice for both sides and would love to have some examples to share on the podcast. As always, I will not attach any person's name. I was going to say human, but person's name or company name to the email, whether you received it or it was sent or from the sender. This will strictly just be for educational purposes, as well as possibly a laugh or two are pretty funny. Maybe not intentionally funny, but that's what makes them funny. So anyway, if you have some of these, please email me. You can email me at the subject line of vendor cold email example or something similar in the subject line. And my email is carisse, K-A-R-I-S-S-E at chargelyticsconsulting.com. I will make sure I put it in the show notes so that you have it there. And I do plan on awarding prizes. I'm not 100% sure what they will be yet. I know that I'll make sure that they're good and relevant. So make sure that as you read them or as you go through them or if you put them in your junk folder, that you send some along because this is a way that we can educate each other in an interesting way. All right, before I dive into some of the fraud related information from sessions that I learned and shared. Now it's time for a message from our sponsor. You've heard me mention that Ravlin is the current sponsor of the Fraudology podcast, but I wanted to make sure that I share a little bit of information about them. Ravlin uses machine learning, but it doesn't have to be a black box. Ravlin's customer-specific machine learning models give fraud teams confidence in their understanding of where fraud's coming from and how to manage it, meaning you're blocking the bad actors and not blocking out paying customers. Unlike other fraud providers, Raven builds a 100% personalized model for its clients. This stops the model from being swayed by patterns in unrelated industries, creating more specific predictions and better performance. You can get closer to 100% payment acceptance with a custom tailored model. Visit ravelin.com forward slash blog to learn more about the custom models they build and how Ravelin's custom models translate to better results for your business. Just visit ravelin.com forward slash blog. There's no gated landing pages, just smart information on fraud and payments provided by the Ravelin team. So admittedly, I didn't get to see as many sessions and educational content as I wanted to. I just couldn't clone myself as I mentioned, but The ones I did attend were great. And another great thing about the app for MRC Vegas was that a lot of people were taking pictures of slides within presentations. And so some of those slides were really informational and I wrote some of the statistics down. So I think all of that should be very helpful for you. Speaking of statistics, hang on, I'm trying to like go through this quickly. The true cost of fraud results. So for those of you who aren't aware, LexisNexis has put together a true cost of fraud survey for many years, over a decade at least. And I often use this in my consultancy when explaining to business leaders why preventing fraud is so important. I remember just even less than a decade ago, the conversion for true cost of fraud was for every $1 fraud, it cost $2.50 to the business. And that's including lost products, the lost revenue from the transaction or just the lost transaction value, shipping costs, any customer service costs, operational costs, researching the chargeback, chargeback fees, et cetera. Well, in 2009, conversion number was $3.13. So for every $1 fraud, it cost a company $3.13. 
Now for 2021, they announced at this event that it is now $3.60 in fraud. This is insane. It's almost a $4 multiplier. So really, it's something to share with your business leadership. As you look at your prevented fraud numbers, you can just multiply that by 3.6. And that really shows how much you've saved your company in those. I would also encourage you to factor in false positives. I know that that's a challenging thing to quantify, but we do want to be aware of the fact that all amounts canceled due to fraud aren't always fraud. And it, that really can depend on the solution provider you use and the processes you have. I get to see this 10,000 foot view and definitely it varies based on providers and technology. And I, I do see patterns of the specific problems that emergents are having dependent on which solution provider they use or solution providers they use. So, but I do think that there's a lot of great new technology out there and more and more companies are realizing that not all fraud products were created equal. So that gives me hope for Sardine is now sponsoring Fraudology, and one of the reasons I've been so impressed by Sardine is their founder, Soups Ranjan. You'll hear my full conversation with him in the next few weeks, and you'll get to hear about some of his experiences and his passion for fraud fighting for yourself. But the TLDR, or the high-level summary, is that he started out as a fraud fighter with an engineering and data science background, and he was tasked with quickly identifying a fraud solution for one of the fastest-growing companies in the relatively new and high-risk crypto industry almost a decade ago. But after learning about the available options for online fraud detection, he became frustrated with the existing tools on the market. And as fellow fraud fighters, I think a lot of us know exactly the kind of tools he was frustrated with. The legacy fraud tools that just return a score or a signal or a yes, no, maybe. Without your team getting to understand all of the aggregated data or the value attributed to each data point that goes into calculating that score or the vendor who won't give you your company's data for your own models and their own user interface was probably an afterthought. And let's be honest, Soup wasn't the only one who's been frustrated by the status quo in fraud technology. But not all of us are able to rage quit our jobs, recruit a few of the smartest risk engineers we've ever known, and go build a fraud platform that is truly built by the fraud squad for the fraud squad. A platform for KYC, AML, and payment risk all in one product that lets the client company decide how to best use the massive amounts of data that's available to them. And that's pretty much exactly what Soups did a few years ago. And the result of those efforts has become one of the fastest growing solution providers in fraud that I've seen in many years. And that company is Sardine. To learn more about Sardine or to book a personalized demo, you can go to www.sardine.ai or just click the link at the top of the description for today's episode. the future on that, but I do think that that's really important. Another statistic that came from a session titled Driving Value in the Disputes Ecosystem, which was by Greg Witten at Verify and Patterson Weber at Asurion, was that there's a strong correlation between CMP sales growth and disputes. So CMP spending went up 34% in 2021 compared to 2019, and CMP disputes went up 29% between those two years. So 34% up in spending, an increase in 29% in chargebacks. So pretty close there. Uh, CMP disputes are 60 times more likely than card present disputes. Obviously, the biggest factor there is liability shift. But 
as I'm going to talk about in a little bit from an issuer's perspective, there, because of the liability, there are some banks, not all of them, but some issuing banks that are more willing and quick to issue chargebacks as a form of a resolution to a customer problem if it's a card not present transaction, because again, it, it's not technically their money. Additionally, the resolution timeframe has been reduced from 26 days to, in some cases, less than one second. I do think that that was probably around VMPI, which is one of Visa's resolution products, but that product doesn't allow merchants to dispute transactions. It just simply allows them to accept and refund them before a chargeback comes. There are some use cases where that is very valuable, especially for merchants that are kind of on the bubble for the excessive chargeback monitoring program, but it is quite expensive. It, it can vary based on your volume, so I'm not going to quote it here, but you really have to factor in your average order value, your customers, just the use cases, et cetera. You can be judicious about that, so you can just say in this situation and that situation will auto-refund them, but... So I guess I just wanted to point out that that doesn't necessarily mean that chargebacks are resolved in one second, but I do know that with Visa Online Resolution, otherwise known as VOR, that that time frame of 26 days has been cut significantly. And that's a good customer experience for the cardholder, as well as for your accounting team and your finance team to not have as much funds kind of in this limbo area as the merchant processor and the card issuers are determining who should own the amount of the transaction in the chargeback process. And then another thing that I just thought was really interesting, not super surprising, but interesting, is that there were over 88 million visa disputes processed from January 2021 to December 2021. That's a lot. I will always talk about how I wish that we could bring back fraud affidavits <laughs> since the rule change in 2011, I know I probably sound like somebody that's like back in my day, but I do know that's a huge factor and contributor to those increases, but something to be aware of, especially as you're talking to your leadership and if they're asking you, well, why are your chargebacks higher or why are our chargebacks higher, especially in dollar amount? I think the percentages are fairly similar because that denominator of sales is still is rising as well. You can share with them that according to Verify, which is a Visa company, so they have good data, chargebacks have gone up 29%, the number of chargeback disputes in the last two years. That's a good explanation of it. I think you guys all know, at least if you've listened for a while, that I could geek out on chargebacks all day long. And I do think that I should do a solo episode on them again soon. I'm also planning, and I don't think I've announced this yet, probably because I... <laughs> I don't know, I hold myself back in very odd ways, but I did make a decision this past week to double down on my chargeback training. I've been providing chargeback training to individual merchant companies for several years. And one of them told me that just after completing my three hour chargeback training session that I did for them, for their team, they've increased their chargeback win rate by almost 20%. So I'm gonna be offering that online soon listen out for that or contact me if you want to be on the wait list. I'll be doing that for groups of merchants rather than individuals so that the price can be a little bit less expensive for each of you and just to reach more people. I think that clarity around the chargeback process is something that a lot of people ask me about and with my own processes and system and everything, I, I created some pretty good training documentation. So 
I'm working with a company to do that uh, in a professional manner, but I just thought I'd throw that out there. One of the sessions that I went to and that I wrote about on LinkedIn that I really appreciated was called Insulting Your Good Customers Could Cost You and then semicolon Empathy 101. And it was by Emily and Rosa at Google. I'm intentionally not sharing their last names just because I know that they are popular and I didn't get their permission. But I wanted to just read to you what I posted on LinkedIn because I think that this is helpful. This topic is something that I feel like I talk about a lot, but I really enjoyed their perspectives and experiences. Often as risk and fraud professionals, we're so focused on the two to 5% of orders that are risky to our business that we don't consider the over 25 or 95% of customers and orders that are legitimate. And frankly, <laughs> your legitimate customers pay your paycheck. It's critical to consider the user experience of your good customers, especially when things go wrong. Cards decline, systems can incorrectly identify risk factors and cancel orders, accounts can be flagged and locked down, accounts can get hacked, otherwise known as taken over, etc. Are you proactively scoping out the flow of these events and being intentional about clear messaging? The true cost of losing customer trust is difficult to quantify and varies by business model, AOV, average order value, target customers, etc. But just because something's difficult doesn't mean you shouldn't try. I did take a few pictures of their slides. The one below, I'll read through that in a minute. And why is customer trust so important? Because consumers spend more money and interact with platforms and businesses that they like and trust. It's obviously a tightrope because protecting your company and keeping chargebacks and abuse costs low is your job. But the companies who are injecting empathy into their process flows are the leaders in all areas of e-commerce. I really appreciate Google's perspective on this because it was very clear that they've thought this through quite a bit. One of the slides that they had that I took a picture of first quoted Benjamin Franklin, which is quite interesting when talking about e-commerce because the internet was not something he was aware of, but I actually think it's very applicable. He said, it takes many good deeds to build a good reputation and only one bad one to lose it. So true. And I know I've said this phrase 8 million times on the podcast already, but it's one I live by both personally with my reputation within the industry and just how much people trust me, as well as from a strategy perspective and working with companies. And that is that trust is earned in drops and lost in buckets. That came from Kevin Lee, who's now at Sift Science, who or Sift, I guess, who heard that from a coach when he was in high school. And I just really appreciate that it stuck with him. Additionally, on this slide, they talked about the immediate cost, the long-term cost, and the ecosystem impact to the loss of trust. Immediate costs are things like the false decline transactions, drop-off during verifications, redirect user engagement or reduced user engagement and lost customer um, acquisition costs. Long-term costs of losing your customer's trust include revenue loss from decreased customer lifetime value and ripple effect across the payments ecosystem. And the ecosystem impact, which has $3 signs, kind of similar to like a Yelp or something, is the ecosystem impact includes reputation damage, customer abandoning your products and services and lost trust of the entire ecosystem and industry. They went on to talk about some of the ways they measure this by tools that go out into social media and pick up hashtags about their products, especially around releases or change in service offerings, etc. They really are in touch with all of that. And I mean, of course, they're Google, so they have more data than most 
companies. But I think that just the scrappiness of trying to think about this was really important. They also talked about, I believe they said it was IBM that has an empathy score. Oh my gosh, I'm going to try to look for it in my notes because I know I wrote it down. I was really, let's see, I can't see that. But they do look at click rate, contact rate, like how often customers are contacting them, escalation, billing success and fails. They look at the click stream analysis. I did, I guess I didn't write it down, but there was a product, I want to say it was by IBM, that you can put in your customer messaging into the system and it'll give you back an empathy score or tell you if it's clear and explains things. And I I know that generally the UX team is probably the one or CX team is probably the one working on messaging, but I really appreciated their thought process on this, right? Like you want it to be informative to the customer so they know what next step to take, so they know what happened and feel informed. That's going to help reduce the number of customer contacts you get for your contact center or through chat, through email, et cetera. But also it's going to help them find a resolution on their own. So they're not just retrying their card 57 times and you're having to pay those auth fees and everything else. I thought it was really good content. The speakers were great. And also I think I was just going to mention that if you are a member of the MRC, I think most of these slide decks are going to be available in the next couple of weeks. For you to review, it's never going to be the same as seeing the presentation in person, but there is some really fascinating information on here that, that can be really helpful. Another slide I took a picture of, and this is going to be harder for me to read because it's really small and I, for some reason, can't make it bigger, but they talked about designing an empathetic user journey. So they really mapped out everything from sign up, making a purchase, receiving goods and services, requesting refunds and filing chargebacks. They broke it up into risk checks as well as user communication and then recovery paths, making sure that every time there's communication to the customer that there's some kind of recovery path. However, you're also balancing the fact that you're not giving out, you don't want to give out too much information to someone who is trying to commit fraud, right? So you don't want to say something like, well, your address doesn't match what's on file with the bank or you've attempted seven cards on this one account. So you've got to find the balance there, but they've been very intentional about those things. And I know that that's not something every company has had time for or has even considered. And that's why I'm spending some time talking about it. Additionally, I got to sit in on part of the session titled Practical Fraud Prevention, What We Learned from Writing a Fraud Book. And I have to say this session especially made me so proud. I will be having the authors of the Practical Fraud Prevention book, which is published by O'Reilly, on the podcast soon. The book hasn't come out yet. I believe it's scheduled for release around mid-April. I have a text out to Shoshana to confirm that so we can schedule their interview soon. But Shoshana Marini and Galitza Pora wrote a book for O'Reilly Publishing. And I'll tell the story when I interview them, but I was actually asked to consider writing this book and I just didn't feel like I had been doing fraud analytics on the front lines for a decade and just didn't feel like I was the right person. I also had a lot going on in my personal life at the time. And I was really grateful that Shoshana and Galit, well, were open to my crazy idea of, hey, I think you guys would be the best people to write this book. And I'm just so proud of them. And this was the first official time that Shoshana has spoken on stage. She was with Tal Yeshinov from Plastique. Sorry, Tal, if I said that wrong. And Julie Ferguson, the CEO of MRC. 
And they talked about some of the topics that came up in the book, some of the trends that they saw. They interviewed a lot of fraud fighters in various different industries, specifically around e-commerce and different areas of fintech. And really, we're just covering some of the practical fraud prevention processes and technology, as well as current fraud trends. Tal and Julie are great experienced speakers. This was the first time Shoshana had gotten on stage and she did way better than I think she thought she would. And I'm just so proud of her. So I can't stop talking about that. But Tal and Julie complimented Shoshana really well in talking about these things. And one story that I did catch by Julie was just how one merchant turned false negatives or insults to their customers, which we really define by orders or accounts that are canceled in error because they looked risky or looked fraudulent, but eventually whether through additional checks or other means, uh, the merchant identifies that this is actually a legitimate customer. So they turned it into an opportunity for customer service. And this was a company that sold physical goods. So they would send a small goodie bag of gifts or swag to customers who were inaccurately canceled due to fraud. And obviously this option varies based on your business model and the products you sell, but I thought I'd share it on here to spark other ideas for going above and beyond and really for retaining that customer in a way that will make them come back. Because as I've heard people say often, when you improperly cancel an order or an account due to fraud, you're often referring that customer to your competitor for life. And so it is interesting and I think a good idea in some cases to go above and beyond when this does happen and then continually tweak your processes and your tools to hopefully prevent that from happening in the future. The last session I wanted to highlight was on the keynote stage. It was by Sarah Strauss at Capital One. She's the senior vice president and head of customer channel strategy. I I've mentioned this before, but I feel like Capital One has done the best job from an issuing perspective to really trying to bridge the gap with card not present merchants and e-com and online over the last several years. They attend the Merchant Risk Council. They speak at it often. I use them as a resource and thankfully they reply to my emails. We had Robbie Perry on the podcast several months ago and he talked about his experience at Capital One as well as at Chase from an issuer perspective and the people who were at this year's MRC, including Sarah, used to be on Robbie's team or Robbie used to be on their team and work closely with them. So if you are curious more about the issuer perspective, I highly recommend listening to Robbie Perry's interviews, part one and part two. But I really was impressed by Sarah. I actually sent an email to two of the guys on her team and I said I was totally fangirling and if at all possible, would love to have her come on the podcast. But I also wanted to talk to her about a few of the things she brought up. But I think she did a great job just kind of providing a different perspective on fraud. It's easy as online merchants because of the chargeback liability and because oftentimes issuers are the ones providing credit to people to point fingers and point blame. But they come in wanting to understand the problems and wanting to work together. And I think that that is a step in the right direction. I obviously am very pro collaboration internally and externally within the merchant community and outside of it, which also includes issuing banks, merchant processors, solution providers in the fraud perspective. All the way over, we all need to work together because let's be honest, the bad actors all work together as well. 
did joke with a friend of mine that I very highly doubt that bad actors are getting together in a karaoke room and singing their lungs out and just being goofy. If we have some fun on this side and that's good. So, so yes, they do work together, but it's usually virtually. And I don't think they develop as strong friendships as we have. So there are some advantages. Some of her points included that issuers do care about fraud. I think it, it was important to her to provide that perspective. And I think she did a really good job at it. She said that fraud is expensive for them too. And it's growing. They've invested in new technology. They've developed new fraud tools. They've built new platforms. As she mentioned a few times that what e-commerce calls friendly fraud or first party fraud is a cost and a burden on them as well and creates a bad experience. We'll say that some issuers more than others make it very easy for their cardholders to issue chargebacks. In some cases, they've increased their customer experience within their online banking or their web portal to be able to very easily dispute transactions with very little additional steps or proof. So that is, but I also understand from their perspective, and this is something that I think anyone in e-commerce and, and fintech can really relate to, is that if it were up to the fraud department, they would probably do things differently from a customer experience way for those chargebacks. But I know that it's a constant conversation with the business on what's best for the business, as well as what's best for the overall ecosystem. And I know I've mentioned this before, but from talking to a lot of issuers, I know that especially in the U.S., their number one goal is to be top of wallet. They want to be the card that's chosen out of their cardholder's wallet over their competitors. Within Europe and APAC and other areas, I'm not as sure about LATAM, but oftentimes the average consumer may have three cards, but they're all from the same bank. So there's just not as much competition. But ease to chargeback, ease to dispute is part of that top of wallet strategy, as is authorizing transactions and not tripping them up more. So just something to be aware of. You know, it's like I said, I'm always, I always think it's important to see the other perspectives. Even if we don't agree with them, it's important to understand the why behind the decisions that are made. She also talked about how the rebill experience on the customer is challenging. And I, I want to talk to her more about that because from my perspective, a rebill on the customer means that the merchant won the chargeback. So is there an opportunity for them to share with the customer that perhaps this dispute was done in error? I don't know. I haven't ever officially been on the issuing side, so I could be very off base. But while I understand that having a customer rebuild on a chargeback is a bad customer experience for them, it's also important for merchants to respond to chargebacks that aren't fair. So we've all got to find the ground somewhere. <laughs> There was a fraud story that she mentioned that I found really fascinating, and it's probably not one that's going to surprise anyone, but I really appreciated how much work they did on this because oftentimes, and, and I think this is one of the reasons why she shared it, oftentimes there is a perception within the e-commerce merchant world that issuers don't do a lot on card not present fraud because it's not their liability. She was talking about how they had a, a couple of years ago had a real big spike in new account opening fraud. So fraudsters or bad actors were uh, stealing identities to create new credit cards. And one of the components that they were doing was getting driver's licenses. And they found the bad actors learned quickly because they always can constantly looking for vulnerabilities. 
they found that specifically in the state of Florida, the Department of Motor Vehicles or the DMV was allowing people to reorder a new driver's license. So, you know, they claimed that it was lost for only $10. So this new driver's license would be shipped to the address on file. But what had also started around that time was USPS informed delivery. We actually have that for our household because we had our mail stolen once and it provides a scan of every piece of mail that you are about to receive. The problem is that bad actors very quickly realized, well, I can sign up for informed delivery on the address of the victim of the identity I'm stealing. So I know exactly when they're about to get their driver's license from the Florida DMV and I'll just intercept it. So clearly a lot of them had to be local, but think it's really common knowledge. And I've talked to a few federal law enforcement that have been in uh, stationed in these areas that from Miami to Atlanta, there's quite a bit of white collar financial crime, which definitely includes credit card theft and identity theft. And so someone would see that, okay, the DMV letter is coming to them on this date. And then they'd go pick it up before the real person could. What made it even more just scalable, right? Because this could be kind of a one-off thing, but they scaled it by stealing the identities of people that lived in the exact same areas, whether that's the same apartment building or condo or the same city block. She said they would see entire city blocks in one day where there were accounts opened for each of those. Well, first they get the driver's license and then they provide proof in quotation marks that they were the real person opening up the credit card. And then once they received the credit card, they'd also use USPS informed delivery to know when they were getting the card from the bank that they filed it for. In this case, it was Cap One. She was very open about it and I appreciated that. But we know that every issuer has these problems, so it's not specific to them. They... She said that the total amount of exposure, not losses, she was very clear about that. And I appreciate that. So the total amount of attempts, essentially, or exposure where they could have lost money was $36 million. That's not how much they lost. They were able to recover quite a bit and stop a lot of it. But that's just a really good example of how bad actors, and this is what Marianne and I talked about on in our presentation that replayed on this past Tuesday's episode of the podcast, where fraudsters and bad actors aren't just attacking one entity, they're kind of going across. So in this case, the Florida DMV was used, USPS informed delivery was used. I'm sure they used stolen cards for both of those transactions. Then on top of that, obviously the identity theft piece. So I thought that was really interesting. I did learn a lot more about refund fraud and delivery manipulations from several merchants, as well as a few carriers that were brave enough to attend the event. There was one person who represented a carrier who raised their hand in a session full of retailers and said that they wanted to help. And when I talked to her, several people told me about it. Um, I said, well, you didn't realize what can of worms you opened, but at the same time, it's so exciting to have opportunities to collaborate with carriers. So I will be deep diving into that later. There's a few clarifying pieces I want to get to and also have my biweekly retailer call this week just to kind of solidify some more information to give you guys as much meat on the bone, so to speak, as I can. So with that, obviously, I could not recap every conversation and every session that was had there. It would be a five or six or seven hour podcast at least. 
But I do hope that this helped you learn a little bit about what was discussed last week and kind of think a little bit about your strategies and processes. And should I attend another fraud conference before the next MRC Vegas, I will absolutely provide a similar deep dive. I think it's really important for all of us to stay connected and informed as much as we possibly can. So with that, I'm going to call it a day for now, but I look forward to speaking with you soon. Thank you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.